Welcome to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance, where top-level COOs share the insights, tactics, and strategies that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Jonathan Derby is the COO at Ongoing Operations, where he oversees the management of their computer and network security. He's a solution-oriented leader that excels at communication, process development, and building lasting team relationships. Having worked 15 years in the financial tech industry, he is highly skilled in hosted services and disaster recovery. He's dedicated the last five years to creating a cloud platform for credit unions that allows them to compete with large retail banks. Jonathan is dedicated to continuous learning and professional development. He's recently been expanding his interests in scaling managerial services and creating incentives for employees to reach operational and sales goals. In his free time, Jonathan loves to get away to Punta Mita, his favorite town in Mexico. Jonathan is also a founding member of the COO Alliance, and he and his CEO, Kirk, just recently attended our CEO COO event in Scottsdale. So Jonathan, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Thanks for having me, Cameron. I am looking forward to um, to learning from you. It's, it's it's interesting. Whenever you're at the CEO of Alliance events, we get little snippets of time, but I don't get you know enough to really dig in and, and learn a little bit about the chief behind the chief. So why don't you give us a little bit of your background, kind of where you came from and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, um, absolutely. So actually, my first job was actually at a credit union, working with the CEO of this company. We were in different departments and how we came to, to meet each other was a pretty funny story. But been in that space most of my career. Also worked at Morgan Stanley in New York City. I was one of the youngest uh, vice presidents there in technology. And I was actually the first employee of our company back in 2006 <laughs> um, and have changed a lot since then. So I was there for about five years, left for a little over three years, and then came back um, oh, cool. and been with them for another five years. So about 10 years in total. But I, I definitely explored some other things for a few years and came back and began working with my CEO again. It's understanding. I didn't realize you'd actually left. Why did you leave at that point and why did you come back? You know, I think five years, we really started as a true, a true startup. So I was employee one, I was the, the only employee. And I think when you go through those high growth cycles, the company is growing, but it's important for the employees to keep up. And I definitely had some frustrations, probably with just the amount of responsibility that kept coming that was just really hard to keep pace with. Mm. But at the end of the day, I think one of my biggest challenges is I was really young at that time. The company had gone from $700,000 in revenue to about $10 million revenue in that period of time. Okay. And part of that is the company probably outgrew me at, at sure. that point in time. Yep. It was important yep. for me to take a break and work in the enterprise for a few years and get some perspective. So I actually really loved working at Morgan Stanley and working in the enterprise. What I looked at it and said, is this how I want to spend my entire career? I think I could have been very successful there. It actually did accumulate a lot of success in my in my three years there. But I said, hey, you know, I was really passionate about what I used to do, and I was really frustrated. So I definitely, my CEO, you know, we kept in touch, and there definitely was some frustrations with my transition, but we always kept in touch. And when there was an opportunity to launch a new arm of that company, I got the phone call, and we said, hey, you know, this sounds like a great opportunity. We'd love to work together again. And actually, our relationship, I think, has been on an uptick since that. But I actually think it was really important that we took that break. That's great. Otherwise, I don't, I don't think we'd be in touch today. Well, it kind of shows both of you that the grass isn't always greener as well, right? You start to see some of the little idiosyncrasies, stuff that drives you nuts. And you're like, yeah, but I kind of love that little thing that drove me nuts as well. And yeah, the growth that you went through when you come in as employee number one and you you run a company or grow that quickly, it it really does start to outgrow us. There's 
I was sitting with the CEO of Infusionsoft, Clayton Mask, and we were talking at a Genius Network event, and he was saying that a key employee can usually only go through two successive doubles in the company. That you can only go from like two million to four, and four from eight, but it's very hard to then go from eight to sixteen. But then to go to, to the outside world and come back in, what skills do you think you brought back in with you from Morgan Stanley? Uh, you know, the biggest one was a kind of renewed approach to things. So we'd been so caught up in startup mode. And a lot of people on our executive team hadn't actually had that much experience with the enterprise. How does a larger company solve these problems? How do you do the same thing, not once or twice, but a hundred times consistently the same way? Hmm. So I grew tremendously in process development um, and spent a lot of time at Morgan Stanley working on, hey, how do we enhance this process? So when I came back, I looked at how we used to do things. I'm like, guys, that's great for once or twice. But if this is going to be a product and we got to deliver it to hundred people, we have to build scale. So that's where I really focus a lot of my time is when we have a really good idea, how do we build it to scale? Because if you can't scale it, it's just a good idea that doesn't really go anywhere. It costs you more money than you make, yeah. We had the founder of a company called Sweet Process come in and present at one of the recent COO Alliance events. What do you guys use internally as you know your tools to document your SOPs or document your processes? And then also, can you get, kind of give us maybe what your baseline approach would be to, to come up with better processes? So absolutely. So sweet process is something we've been using since last week once we found out about it and have been obsessed with it uh, <laughs> and try and testing out a few processes. So we've actually gone through three or four iterations of using that. But we do a lot of enterprise project management, which I'll be the first to say, I don't think there's any amazing project management tool out there. It, a lot of it comes down to how disciplined you are and how well you use the tool. Uh, we actually use a system called ConnectWise that manages all of our services and project delivery and uh, CRM which is actually built for our industry, which is the managed service provider space. In terms of documentation, we have been using for years just very specific directories where we have all of our process folders, our customer folders, and we use SharePoint as the backend. We are actually making the transition to a software called IT Glue, if you're familiar with, which is just a much more enterprise tool for managing documentation, managing the version control, but most importantly, making sure that everyone can find your documents. The, a lot of times you use document tools and you don't think about the search functionality and you can never find what you're looking for. And if you can't find what you're looking for, it's of little value to the rest of the company. The stuff that always drove me crazy with documentation was that employees would save a copy of it to their desktop and then they would use that. And it, it kind of makes sense, right? Look, I'm just using it. It's right here. It doesn't matter. But all of a sudden it becomes outdated or they save it somewhere else or they miss kind of the updates. Yeah, it's always driven me crazy. So that's that's what you're moving to then? Yep. Okay. By the way, just give our listener a bit of a rundown as to what ongoing operations does. So what does your company do? Maybe the the uh, you know the one-minute helicopter tour of the business. Yeah, so we're definitely a, we're a fintech company and we really fo- uh, focus on cloud services and managed services to the credit union industry. Helping credit unions is actually a big part of our vision. And for those who don't know the difference between a, you know, a credit union and a bank, Credit unions are actually owned by their members. They're a not-for-profit organization. They do act like financial institutions, right? But when they make money, they give it back to their members, either lower loan rates or higher CD rates or superior member service. So we really help them outsource their, their IT needs because they usually are not at the same scale as a, you know, a large commercial bank. You know, they, instead of spending billions, they're spending millions. And we want to take as much of the IT burden away from them so that they can focus their time on member-facing technology and improving that experience rather than just keeping the lights on. 
or, hey, how do I spin up a server in four hours? That's something our company does really well. They usually don't have the staff or budget to do that. So we really try to make their technology more efficient so they can focus on their members, which is their ultimate core mission. So I've, I've always believed in the idea of focus, that if you're completely focused, you're like a laser beam and you can cut through steel or rock. And if you're not, you're kind of dispersed and you can, you know, you can light up a room, but either way, it's light. You guys have really chosen to stay very specific on a pretty, I mean, it's a big niche, but like the credit union space. Funny enough, I actually have spoken to the Credit Union Executive Society twice, Qs, which I think is the the uh, Association for Credit Unions. But how did you pick that niche? And do you have clients outside of it or, or do you just so, focus? Yeah. Uh, so we had a lot of experience and our CEO, Kirk, and our founder are very much interested and passionate about supporting the credit union cause, as am I. And it's funny, we used to do just about, you know, our, our business model used to be anything for anyone, as long as they're willing to pay for it and asking for it. Right. We started with credit unions, but took on other customers outside of that vertical. And over the years, about we've really changed our habits. About 90% comes to the vertical from that vertical. And that's mostly so we can bring scale and efficiency to it. The non-credit union space has, has different needs. And yeah, we have the skill sets, we have the platform, and we do help that you know, uh, selectively. But we said, hey, for us to really scale our services, we have to be vertical specific. And when you look at other MSPs in the space, if they go vertical specific, they usually can actually scale the company, whereas most MSPs really peak out at like 15, 20 employees where we've got 50 right now and we're still growing. Right. How do you and Kirk stay on the same page? I mean, Kirk is a very different personality profile to you or maybe you're different. So tell us a little bit about each of your personality profiles. Have you done any, you know, any profiles on yourselves and then, and how do you differ and how do you stay on the same page? So absolutely. Until about two years ago, I think I just ignored uh, personality profiles in general. I really just didn't think they're that much value. And over the last two years, I've done a 180, and I really believe in them. I use them in my day-to-day with my employees. And when you look at it, we really focus on the disk at our company. Okay. Uh, so my CEO is a DI, and he's very, yeah, so very dominant. And I'm actually a DC, which are going to butt heads. But we actually said so this past week, we were at the CEO, CEO event. And we spent some time with Steven Sisler and really merged our two personalities against each other. And it's actually amazing how much we complement each other and how much we frustrate each other and how we had to change a few habits. But as a DC, so as a DI, and actually he would say his unique ability is to get something to 80% very quickly. He's a yep. super high fast start. I'm not a high fast start, but I'm the guy you want to take from 80% to 100%. Right. And that we, so I, we inherently complement each other. But so, also, when you look at some of the personality traits, he inherently, I think this is the quote from Steve, and is inherently hardwired not to appreciate me. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> and it's that we, oh, that's highlighted, yeah, we highlighted a few traits where we actually, uh, we have to meet in the middle, we have to compensate to make sure it's a good relationship for both of us. But but, it's, so, it's so me. I, I was telling my director of operations, Rachel, and she really runs, you know, a huge, huge parts of this business for me completely on her own, that I will always find the little things that are wrong that will drive me crazy and just kind of take for granted that I love you for the rest of the stuff that's going great. But my job is to see the little things. And because I'm such a high ADD, my attention deficit disorder has me seeing everything. And then I get really wickedly distracted by the thing that kind of jumps out at me. And I don't notice all the good stuff. And I've got to get better and work better at at praise. Do you know what, uh, do you know what your love languages are, by the way? 
just the same as my wife's. It's a quality time. Quality time. Okay. So you appreciate the time that you get with Kirk, which would be like your uh, one-on-one meetings or retreat time that you guys take away every quarter or even, even spending time at the COO's event together. So I did enjoy that. And I was actually joking because my wife's love language is quality time. Therefore, my love language is quality time. But oh, okay. I'm probably quality time and actually affirmation. There you go. Words of affirmation. So you need, which, you need the yeah. verbal praise. Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's amazing how, and it's funny because I've started asking um, CEOs what their love language is and what their employees love language is. And they think I'm like kind of weird, but the reality is the love languages can really play over into the business you know, area. So my love languages are physical touch and words of affirmation. So if somebody comes up and like pats me on the back and says, hey, great job, that feeds me. And, uh, and in the workforce, imagine if you actually understood your employees, you know, love languages as well. Yeah, Steve, you mentioned Steve Sisler. He's, he's kind of a, a world expert on DISC. And I was really, I, first, I loved his presentation at the CEO Alliance event the other day, but his understanding of each of us and our personality profiles was kind of shocking. It, it absolutely blew my mind. And I, I'm very pragmatic according to that, which is absolutely true. And it kind of say, this is kind of your blind spots. This is where you're really going to succeed. And then it's really important to understand what those are. And then I, of course, I wanted to argue about them. I'm like, no, that's, that's really spot on. Yeah. Yeah. He told me that I run at 31 miles an hour with a 30 foot vision. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm running yeah. faster than my vision will allow me to go. So tell me about, about the visions. I've always said that the CEO is really has to hold the vision and the COO has to kind of sign off on it. And then the COO has to come up with the plans and the CEO has to sign off on that. How do you and your CEO stay on the same page with vision? And how do you and the CEO stay on the same page with the plans? So it's it's really it's actually been a really interesting evolution over the last uh, twelve to eighteen months. So my CEO had always had a painted picture, which is similar, but not as good as a vivid vision, right? He would send it out, and the exec team would kind of read it and be like, "Oh, that's nice, thanks for doing that." And that's about where it would start and finish. Where it was really important to him, it really frustrated him that others were not embracing it. When I attended, I think last November meetings on culture, I was like, "Wow, this is really really important." And since then. I've really engaged with him. We've actually updated the painted picture together, have our goals through 2020. And it got brought the rest of the executive team and started really making, you know, we always talked about living it before and it was important to our CEO, but hey, let's make this actually our vision of the company, our culture of the company and push it down to the rest employees. So we've actually gone through that process a lot in the last 12 to 18 months. And you are, you, when you start making decisions based on culture, um, they become a lot more clear and mm-hmm. easier to make when you can say, hey, this person is doing really well, but we keep ending up in these situations. Their work performance is good. It's because they're a high performer. They're not a culture fit. And you look at, well, you actually can't solve that probably. You actually have to deal with it. And looking at how we look at employees' performance and their satisfaction with the company based on culture has really changed the way I look at it. It's been a huge actually change for us in the last uh, 12 to 18 months. Yeah, the, the old adage of hire for attitude, train for skill doesn't really get you there. You need to have both. You need to have the culture fit and the results. Yeah. And we've brought that into our interview process is we actually do a culture screen before we do any kind of interview just to make more efficient. Because if you're not a culture fit, there's actually just no point in going to the next round. So we've really started to, to build that into our, our process. And you know, part of it is, is also making sure that all of our employees really believe in the vision and the culture of the company. And if they don't, they actually will, you know, self-select and say, hey, this isn't for me. And they'll move on. And that's, and that's fine, too. Ultimately, we want everyone to be happy and aligned with the culture and vision. How do you screen for culture? What do you do to, to screen for that? Okay. 
Um, so there, there's a, a few things we do. So we actually, our, our HR team actually leads the, leads the culture screen. And we have about one of 40 questions that we look at uh, that they, they usually choose like six or eight these questions. And they really are about culture or how they deal in certain situations or that are trying to get to, do they really care about the person that they're working with or the person they're doing work for? Additionally, we actually give them a copy of our painted picture as a prerequisite and ask them to tell us about the painted picture, what they like about it, what they don't like about it, and can they describe an activity where they've applied that thought in the past? And if they were like, oh, I was supposed to read that document, that's a really easy decision. Or sometimes you'll get someone, hey, I like that, but that's not really my personality. Or you get someone who's, I love this vision, I love this culture, Mm -hmm. I want to work here. And if someone starts off by saying that, you know, we're going to fast track them through the more technical interview process. And, but it's a game changer. It's a more efficient use of the, the applicant's time as well as our employees' time to go through that process. Yeah, I love that you're using it that way. And for, for anyone who's listening, the, the term painted picture was the old term that we now call the vivid vision. I think people used to think that a painted picture involved diagrams or vision boards. So we now call it a vivid vision, which is that four or five page written description of what your company looks and feels like in the future. And if you, if you want details on it, it's written up in the book, Double Double. It's chapter one in Double Double. It's also been covered in the book, The Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs. And then there's a book now called Vivid Vision, which really outlines the whole process of writing one for your company or for your personal life. Um, but I love that you're using it at the beginning of the interview process to really screen out candidates as well, to push people away if they're the wrong fit and to attract the ones that are the right fit. Do you share copies of your Vivid Vision with your customers and suppliers at all? Um, so we haven't traditionally, but um, it's so funny this year, a few customers have asked for it. They said, hey, you know, and it's usually their management or leadership team. Sure. And we've just been happy to share it. We have not really, you know, published it publicly, but there's no reason not to. It's a great vision and something we believe in. So why not share it with everyone? Yeah, I would encourage you to actually start sharing it with 100% of your customers, 100% of your employees, 100% of your potential employees. Share it with your banker, your lawyer, your accountant, like really share it with all the circles of influence on the company. What ends up happening is they start getting so excited about what you're building, they want to be a part of it. And it's um, it's more, insp- and they've never seen stuff like this. You know, they'll bring it into their businesses. And and when you start having an impact on the rest of their business, you've locked them up as a client forever too. Tell me um, tell me about when we were at the, at the COO Alliance event the other day, we were talking a little bit about pricing and about our rates. And you guys were talking, you know, making some decisions or thinking about yours. Any thoughts you want to share on those? So, yeah, so absolutely. So we were looking at where we've been looking at some of our pricing strategy over the last decade. And the reality is, is that, you know, our costs have continued to rise. And a lot of times because the space we work in, you're trying to be cost competitive. But if you become cost competitive, people just look at you at a low cost provider. They start to disregard the value you're adding. So mm-hmm. in a, a quick session with Cameron, my CEO and I said, hey, we're, we, our profit's not where we want it to be. And it creates you know, that's creating other issues in the company. And the simple last question was asked, when was the last time you raised your prices? And we said about 10 years ago. Since then, our costs have gone up. Our labor costs, our labor acquisition costs have gone up. And the reality is it, it has for our customers. And they have, they're facing the same challenges we are, but we're supposed to be the experts. So we actually took that back and, and took it, had the philosophical conversations. Do we want to be Walmart? No, we want to have a premium service where the value is there. If we're creating value for our customers, they're going to be able to work with these new prices. So we actually are raising prices across the board, effective October 1st, awesome. um, and working through that. So it was a great advice. And we looked at how the industry has changed, how the costs in the industry have gone changed, and we've, we've stayed relatively flat. Um, yeah, you, and, 
Go ahead. Yeah. And so we're, we're making some modifications there for sure. Great. And it's interesting, like you, you rarely hear buzz, you know, you rarely hear raving fans talking about a brand that is low priced. I mean, it just, they just don't create that raving fan environment or they don't create the raving employee environment. Um, when you really think about the best places to work, they're usually higher priced. When you hear about, you know, great fan experiences or great employee or, or customer experiences, they're usually higher priced. You know, the Ritz-Carlton is not the Holiday Inn. You know, nobody runs around talking about how wonderful the Holiday Inn is or, you know, a wrap. Like, I don't know, I can't even think of any lower priced brands. You know, even Disney, like Disney is really high priced. Like it's not cheap to go to it to that place, but but darn, they provide an amazing experience. Yeah, and, and the telltale was we've been selling on value over price the last year and mm-hmm. people believe in the value, they're seeing the value. And if we st- stick to that technique, the pricing won't be an issue. And ultimately, yeah. our, our customers, if we're successful, they're successful. We do have a lot of mutual alignment there with our customers. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what you guys can actually start adding to the equation now going forward, too. So you talk about, you know, the vision and people being all on the same page for vision. So what do you think the keys are for executing your vision? How do you start getting the team, you know, I guess, first the management team and then second, all your employees? How do you start getting them on the same page? And how do you start executing your vision? The key changes we've made. So first off, we really had to get our executives to really embrace it, which is something we we tackled at the end of last year and say, hey, let's. this is our CEO's vision. Does this align with you? Do you love this? Do you hate it? Would you change anything? And we actually were in really good alignment. And we've taken it to the next level, making sure that employees that hadn't seen it in a year, that any important meeting, in fact, I had one just last week, I start with reviewing the vision and how are we doing against our vision? More importantly, when we look at our goals, we looked at the goals of our company. The goals actually were just like templated business goals, not aligned with the vision. So mm-hmm. moving forward, we've actually aligned our goal cascade to come down with our vision so that our employees are always thinking about it. And if someone wants to challenge you or disagree with you, they're going to be a lot more successful if they tie it back to, we're not honoring our vision or we're disregarding this part of the vision by making this decision. But We've taken it from just being this thing in the sky that our CEO loved to pushing this throughout the company. So something right. we talk about at meetings and it's it's tied to your performance and your goals for the year, which I think was actually the biggest change in how I push it out. I love that you're tying it to their goals. I also love that you're talking about it at all your meetings too. I think that's critical because you get people thinking about the future but operating or executing on today. I was talking to a group of CEOs. I was speaking at a big conference of CEOs yesterday in Montreal and I was talking to them around how the company needs to have four core goals for the year and for the quarter. And the first most primary goal should be your employee net promoter score. Your secondary goal would be your customer net promoter score. Your third would be profit and your fourth would be revenue. And I think most companies mess that up and they think of a revenue goal first and a profit goal second and customer third, et cetera. And I've just always believed that if your employees are super happy, they're going to take care of everything. And then if your customers are super happy, that's where the profit and revenue comes from. Do you guys have any philosophies around that at all and how you take care of your employees? You actually brought up the employee net promoter score with us last week, which is something that we are going to build in. So we do, an, we do an annual survey with our employees around their satisfaction, go through that in a lot of detail to make sure we're not violating our own values. But I think rolling out the employee net promoter score is going to be our next step. And I think that is the right order, the employee, then the customer, then the profit. Yeah, I think it'll it'll pay huge dividends when you start having those discussions and when they start to feel like you actually are obsessed about their engagement as well. So talking about the employee kind of experience, are your employees all in one location? Are they remote? What percent would be remote versus? 
yeah, I'd say we're about 70% remote and about 30% of our employees are in the offices. And when I talk with my CEO peers, with the number one differentiator, and it definitely creates unique challenges when you have a remote workforce. And I think it also puts a, it makes it much more challenging. You have to make a much more conscious thought if you want to build culture remotely than if you're in the same workplace. So what kind of challenges are you dealing with there and how are you, how are you working through them? Well, it's actually, so, so first off, it actually starts at the hiring. Not every person is actually built to work from home. Mm-hmm. There's certain personality types that are going to not collaborate, will actually be prone to depression or mood swings, or people who, if they don't, if you don't have the work ethic or the discipline to work, you know, from home, it'll be evident pretty quickly. So we actually okay. screen, screen for that on the front end, but then, so we've got all these employees that work remotely. So actually one, we get face-to-face the entire company once a year. Next year, we're going to make that, uh, we're aiming for two times. I think we'll actually be doing two events. We get the entire company together. We get the management and the executive team together a lot, but also trying to meet with other employees, flying them in. I, I flying them into certain cities where we can all meet. That face-to-face is really important. On the virtual side, so we do monthly meetings. We have folks turn on, you know, turn on their video, get the entire company together. But we leverage a ton of video conferencing. And the downside is I think we actually probably have more meetings than we need to because we're trying to increase interaction and collaboration among the entire company. Hmm. But that's something we have to, that's something we are always balancing because the, the more they see each other, either on video or in person, collaboration co- goes up, better ideas come of it. And we also try to do some things together as an entire company. So every Monday afternoon, we have a documentation call. Every team, everyone in the company joins said, this is what we want to accomplish. The teams break up and they update the rest of the company at the end of the meeting. But it's one, it creates some good documentation. More importantly, it gets the entire company together once a week. I love it. I heard one of my clients recently, they were planning their retreats and I was curious, they were running it in like Tucson, Arizona. I'm like, how the heck did you pick Tucson? He said, we always pick secondary cities and secondary markets because we can get higher value um, hotels or Airbnbs. We can get more kick-ass places for a lower cost. So instead of going like San Francisco as their event location, they go with Tucson and they end up with like a wicked Four Seasons Resort or a Ritz-Carlton or they're like a killer Airbnbs, but they're doing it for half the price. And um, interesting way to consider it. Where do you guys run yours? In the recent years, it's actually been out of Hagerstown, Maryland, which is actually where our corporate headquarters is. And that's probably a convenience of the space. And I think we're going to do one there next year and another one potentially in Phoenix where our other location is. But it is interesting actually getting out of there. Our challenge is we, since we are the IT hosting background, if we want to include everyone, it has to be at one of our offices because yeah. they, we still actually have to cover shifts and make sure we're taking care of our customers. Oh, got it. That makes sense for sure. Is it true that you actually did not, uh, or I guess turned down the original COO role that you were kind of, uh, you weren't really wanting it. Is that true? Or did I understand that correctly? we had actually had the discussion around this. And there was, we basically, a year, so I've been in the position about a year and the, the conversations started and there was, hey, if you want to move into the COO role, you have to actually accomplish, you know, X, Y, Z. And we let that conversation actually go on for about a year. And the CEO was actually just waiting on me the whole time to say, yes, I'm really ready. I'm ready to tackle this. So I think we started the conversations about a year in advance and he put some goals in front of me that I needed to, mm-hmm. I needed to tackle in order to get the role. And we did that. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was, it was really good that I didn't take the role a year prior that we worked through that process for about a year. And then he said, yeah, you're ready. Let's do this. 
That's interesting. Really thought through it. Tell me about what it's like working with a remote CEO because you and he are not in the same city. We have to make the time. So one of the things actually out of the meetings last week, we actually set up our just us. We have group meetings every week, but just us, him one-on-one weekly is a habit we've changed. But probably the best thing we've done is once a quarter, we meet up or I usually fly to his house in Southern Oregon and we spend a solid day and a half, two days just talking strategy, what are the challenges, what are the obstacles, barriers we're both working through, and take a full, uninterrupted day and a half, two days and just align where we are, where we're going. And that's probably the best thing we've done. And I've suggested that to a few other COOs that are not in the same city as their CEO, that we both have to detach and make that an effort, invest in our relationship, but just keep us aligned because the threat of getting out of alignment when you work virtually is much higher because you're not seeing that person. You can avoid them for weeks, months if you want to. So you really just have this forced alignment mechanism that, hey, better not. But we always have to be communicating because we're going to be in person, hey, you know, 60 days from now, 90 days from now. Well, I think you've also touched on something that's even critical for if you're working in the same office, which is getting off site for a day every quarter to get completely aligned because I think you can often get off track even though you're working right beside each other. You know, sometimes the business just gets busy and we just go through the motions and we don't actually have the bigger discussions or confront any of the bigger issues or talk through some of the people stuff or strategy. And I think it's important to do that, you know, regardless of where you are, but for sure when you're remote. Yeah, and I'd say the biggest strategic changes usually come with the one to two weeks following one of those where we really align. There's no question about next steps and we start executing. It's always really powerful. So you can you could probably look at work performance throughout the company, lining up to when we have those offsites. Yeah, for sure it would. Tell me, um, yours as a COO, every COO is in a completely different kind of wheelhouse. They, they have different functional areas that fall underneath them. In some cases, you know, IT reports to the COO. And, and in my case, at 1-800-GOT-JUNK, it didn't. IT reported to Brian as CEO. So what areas of the business report to you and which ones report to Kirk at this point? So reporting to me is about, about 30 of our 50 employees, and that's our entire support our support organization, as well as our implementation organization. And our CEO oversees sales and accounting and actually the technology, which is rolls up to our CTO, which reports to our CEO. Uh, that's really the R&D and the platform development of a team of about five people that really are developing our new products and solutions and responsible for the architecture of our entire platform. It's interesting. You, you mentioned his unique ability earlier. I forget, what did you say it was? His unique ability is getting things to 80%? Very quickly. So how does he, so he's a high quick start, a Colby quick start. If he's able to get things to 80% and pass them off to you, how do you take those handoffs? How does he pass things to you so that you're up to speed? So I often feel like, especially high quick starts, um, entrepreneurs are often, we do a lot of the work in our head and then we pass it off to somebody in a, in a 12 second delegation. How do you get the rest of the story before you, you know, accept the handoff and run with it? I intentionally slow it down. So normally he'll take an idea and launch it 80%. And for an example, we had that, our meeting in, in Scottsdale last week, and I've had 18 ideas that he felt he'd already got to 80%. Mm-hmm. So that was my email Monday morning, 18 emails. And I said, okay, well, Let's slow this down a little bit. Let's prioritize. What does success look like here? Can we focus on three or four of them and really ask a lot of questions, make sure I understand not how he got there, but where he wants to be going and can fill in the dots. So I really, I I do force a lot of prioritization exercises, but also, you know, I've found, I actually don't care about a thought process that he took to get there. 
I actually just want to understand where he wanted it to go. And instead of arguing about the process it took to get there, how do I help him? You know, he's at letter X or Y. How do I get him to Z? And that's really just how I approach it. It's interesting. We talked a little bit about a tool called the decision filter where you get kind of, you know, what the ideal outcome looks like and what the ROI is and, and how much time and money and people inputs we want to put into the project. Because like you said, if he if he's now handed back to you 18 ideas that he's ready to run with, for you, it's like, how do we prioritize that? We can't, you know, we can't do all 18 this year, let alone this quarter. Uh, and if let's say we narrow it down to 10, you know, if, in what order, you know, are some of them going to be higher impact to the business or will some of them create momentum? So how do you start to filter those projects out and put prioritization into them? A few things. So first off, we use the decision filter. I don't think he realized he that that's the tool I've been using the last six months till we did one together last week in Scottsdale. We actually, and we went through a few ideas, but it shifted our way of how we prioritize. We actually first look at what's the reward and what's the actual potential downside. And we really just organize everything by what's the high reward. And then we actually look at what are the resources it takes it takes to do it. So we actually go off the criteria that's pretty much exactly in the decision filter. We focus on the reward and then what does it actually take to do it? And we get a relative value out of those things. And we, I've been using that constantly to actually slow down and make sure, are we going to get what we want out of this idea? And a lot of times you have an idea and you start putting it on paper. Well, it was a great idea until you put it on paper. So we actually go through the exact decision filter that you taught us um, when I joined the CO Alliance. It's interesting. Yeah, you're right. Once you actually start flushing it all out and looking at it on paper, sometimes that idea becomes, well, maybe it wasn't so great after all, or maybe it's just a big hairy one. Like maybe it's a great idea, but it involves, you know, a thousand hours or a whole bunch of people that we don't necessarily want to throw the band with that right now. You guys have specifically chosen U.S.-based contractors, U.S.-based freelancers versus international. Why is that? And, and um, kind of walk us through your, your thought processes on that. So it's actually something we are exploring very heavily right now. But we are in a highly regulated space. So credit mm. unions roll up to the NCUA, which is pretty much the same as the, the FDIC. So the regulations for using offshore resources are much more stringent. But we've actually seen in our industry, it is starting, it is starting to happen, especially for a lot of process-driven, procedural-driven work. So it's actually something we're looking at, but the basically the vetting and controls that have to be in place for us are much more advanced. So although it is a huge efficiency gain and a cost savings, what might cost another company $10,000 would probably cost us 20000 because you have to have this control framework, due diligence and vetting process that goes into it, which also includes usually visiting the location of where those staff work. That's interesting. Yeah. How do you stay entrepreneurial in such a regulated environment? What? How do you stay entrepreneurial? It's funny, and it's less about you know credit unions than the, the whole banking industry. So you look at technology as a whole, and you'll see the financial services banking industry usually be five to ten years behind it. Entrepreneurial for us is changing the way credit unions think. The blessing is we actually get to look at technology over the last five years. What was really successful? What panned out? what is super applicable to our, you know, to our vertical and come to them with the best of breed is, hey, so the good news for them is they rarely try a solution that fails because by the time the industry is even remotely accepting the concept of the solution, mm-hmm. it's already been vetted out. So we're able to usually get the best solutions and take them to market relatively quickly because it is vetted technology. You're kind of entrepreneurial for the space that we're in and we try to push our customers quickly to get to those to get to those best standards and it's actually overcoming objections because financial institutions holistically don't like change 
Right. Change right. equals risk. So you have to convince them to take the risks. And it's, hey, look what adopting this platform can do to your members. Because at the end of the day, they want to give the best services to their membership. Taking that angle, they say, well, look what I can do. If I get go with this online banking or mobile platform, I can do this much more for my members. So it's always approached from that. But it's you actually have to convince them to take the to make the change, which to them is just to take the risk. That's interesting. We used to use that the the adage of sell them, don't tell them. It sounds like that's what you're doing as well. You kind of sell them on that direction and then move them there slowly. Love for you to leave us with one kind of uh, final parting thought, I guess, on uh, on leadership. Is there anything that you've learned over the years that has really helped you succeed in your role as a COO that maybe you wish you'd learned earlier on, or or just one that you'd like to share with anybody who's listening? The biggest things for me is knowing your weak spots and understanding the people around you. Those are the biggest changes I've made in the last few years where, you know, as a leader, I just, I wanted people to do things my way with really, you know, little care or thought as to how other people perceive that or how that affected their personalities. And I've invested a lot of time in understanding the people around me, how they operate and how's the best way to work with them. And I've gone from kind of my way is the only way or the highway to, more of an individualized leadership or management where, hey, I know this is this is really your personality type and this is a plan that's going to make you successful that gets us to alignment instead of saying, hey, there's, you know, there's one way to do things. That's that's not the case. That's a change that I've been really focused on the last two years. And it's, it's you know, it's paying dividends for me and something I take really seriously now. And your employees are your best asset. And if you are hiring people that are better than yourself, you got to work with them and don't limit them to just your way of thinking. Yeah, I love that. And the reality is if you are hiring people better than yourself, often they have better ideas and, it, and just kind of enforcing it to do it the way we want to do it isn't really going to grow us, but just getting it done. It also gets more um, more kind of empowerment for them or also more, I guess, excitement into their roles when they're involved in the process and their ideas are getting put in place as well. Jonathan Derby, the COO for Ongoing Operations. Thanks very much for sharing with us today. I really appreciated the time. and looking forward to seeing you guys at uh, one of our upcoming COO Alliance events as well. Yep, absolutely. Appreciate it. Say hi to Kurt as well. Take care, buddy. Will do. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Second in Command with Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. To learn more best practices from industry-leading COOs, please visit COOalliance.com.